Welcome to the Quaredev Midcast with your host Adam Matwatch. Let's start our next meetup today. And today we have great guests. One guest is Dan Stayskal from the United States. If I pronounce your name or surname not correctly, then please correct me in a moment. Uh, Dan is an architect in Oracle and AI ethics uh, engineer, which is, I think, very interesting. I would like to hear about this uh, a bit more um, uh, in a moment, um, uh, who speaks for the human rights and gender equality. So I think this is a very great person for, for today's topic. Uh, welcome, Dana. Hey, Adam, thanks. Um, did you want me to say, say a few things? So it's, it's Stayskull, by the way, Dana Stayskull. Okay. Uh, yeah, my, my, my name is from Czech Republic, but the rest of me is from rural Texas. <clears throat> um, and when I say I'm an architect at Oracle, that doesn't mean I design buildings. That's just the word. That's just our title for the, you know, top of the ladder engineer. So I'm the, it's just as valid to call me, you know, the, the one, one of the couple of lead engineers for Oracle Cloud. Thank you, Dana, for the, this introduction and sorry for mispronunciation. Thank you for fixing that up. And we have a second uh, expert today, which is Ilona Hunek, uh, Hunek, sorry, <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> which is Ilona Hunek, uh, my uh, tutor from the uh, Kozminski University, because Ilona is assistance professor at Kozminski University. Um, one of her specialties is diversity, and that's exactly what I thought that it would be great to have you here and have your expertise. So not only the practical part, but also the theoro theoro some theory um, and, and some uh, science behind the things that we will talk today. Uh, welcome, Ilona. Hello, uh, welcome everybody. And I'm, I feel honored that I was invited for this meeting by my former student. Yeah, all, all the pleasure is on my side. Uh, your, your lectures were really interesting and one of the ones that could open minds of, of, of people for mm, different ideas. So I really appreciate that. So in this case, let's start, guys, and let's start with an uh, opening question. Why should we even care about diversity? Why should I care about diversity in, 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 in the business and, and environment? Why cannot I just do my work, right? Do you have examples on how diversity is helpful, beneficial for organizations, for teams, for projects? Any, any practical examples? Uh, Dana, we can start with you. Sure, sure. Um, so uh, big picture, um, diversity is something that matters because we're trying to solve problems for people in business. Like that's one, you know, one, one of the things that we aim to do in, in enterprises is, you know, solve problems uh, that, that face people. And via, via contraposition, that is, we must because we can't not. Um, there's, there's not a way for us to even identify the problems that face everybody without a diverse group of people that are building things that solve those problems, because not every person sees every problem, but with a diverse enough community of people building a product, you can actually get full visibility on every product, every problem that affects every person. So we can get in front of all of it and not just the problems that are visible to, you know, a dominant subset of the population. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Dana. And before uh -huh. we go to, to you, Ilona, I have a follow-up question then. Sure. Does it mean, uh, because um, one of the arguments I've got from you is we want to have diverse uh, points of view because then we uh, gather bigger, sco cover bigger scope of different, uh, different uh, problems that we are solving. 
So does it mean that if I work, for example, for a company that uh, is developing hearing instruments, then I should uh, include uh, people with hearing impediments and focus only on people with hearing impediments? Or still it would be beneficial to have a diversity in women versus men, handicapped versus capable, um, different, I don't know, different ethnicities. Does it still sure. make sense to have a diversity on all dimensions, not only dimension in which I'm focused right now? Oh, sure. Yeah. So there are, you know, there are dimensions of, diver there, there are a large number of dimensions of diversity. There's, you know, a person's ability, their, their language background, their citizenship, their visa status, their geographic location. Um, all, of, all of these different factors come into play. And even, you know, in, in the example that I'm hearing from you of, you know, say, I think I'm hearing you correctly, that you're talking about a company that might make hearing aids. Would you still need to be diverse there? And, and absolutely yes, because the people buying the hearing aids aren't the only people that your company is going to be interfacing with. You're also going to be interfacing with the, the caretakers and the supply chain um, and the, you know, the market research, the user research. Like you have to, if you don't have all of these perspectives, you could very easily end up with a product that doesn't serve a subset of your, your customers. Um, Thank you for that follow-up, Dan. Uh, Ilona, what's your take on that? Why should we care about diversity? Why does it matter? Well, you know what? I think Dan has said the, uh, the essence of it, right? We are diverse. We are different. And if we don't take it into account, how can we make a product for diverse population? And that's, that's one thing. But uh, I would also like to to bring into our discussion another aspect of why should we care about diversity in employment and that's a social aspect that uh, you know this is the aspect of inclusion because when we talk about business right we have a, a business point of view which means a product profit innovation and all these things but business are also part of the society and uh, businesses can uh, you know by for example not including different groups of society business can businesses can create uh, you know this social divisions and social exclusions and because of this we can have all kinds of problems like the problem of income inequality so i think when we talk about uh, why we need diversity we need to take both perspectives into account mm -hmm. Okay, that's that's uh, interesting, and I fully agree. So, being diverse, also because we want to be the good guys, as I understand, right? Taking into account the social uh, social part of the of the equation. Then it's the first time I think I, I, it would be good to challenge that. But some can agree, uh, can discuss, discuss that uh, business is not charity, right? The, the the goal of the the company when you start company is not being the good guy in the universe. Well. Unless you you leading the social business, because there are organizations that the pure goal of that organization is is to bring the good goodness to the world, right? But if you are Apple, if you are Microsoft, you are if you are Facebook, you you want to bring the most money to the shareholders, right? So uh, in this case, is there any um, anything behind being diverse in organization, having diverse environment that is inclusive to people? that would be still beneficial from that uh, point of view, from the business point of view? Does it make more money to be diverse? And uh, maybe we can start with the, this time with you, Ilana. Uh, well, okay. Uh, one might say that uh, 
the social side is not part of the business, but I would argue with it. You know, just to make a very simple economic argument that by, for example, excluding a certain group of people from the sector, you are, uh, in a way, um, impoverishing, right, the, that group. So you're also excluding a potential group of your customers, right? And this is a very, very, like, almost very, very simple connection. So uh, indirectly, uh, thinking about society uh, and the social effect of the lack of diversity is also, uh, you know, in the interest of the business. This is a survival in the long term. True that. Dana, what's your uh, take on that? Absolutely. Uh, so that this... Um... This this issue is going to express itself slightly differently uh, when you're talking about European-based companies versus American-based companies, uh, because of the the obvious divisions uh, between the, you know Frankfurt School social and economic theory roots um, in you know most of the continent versus the Chicago School socio socioeconomic roots in, in most of uh, most of the United States, um, and in in these two competing perspectives. Um, both of them are grounded in the same reality that, that businesses are made up of people where, you know, the, the Frankfurt School le leans more into business, uh, you know, incorporated businesses exist to support people. So they, they're not exclusively laser focused on shareholder value uh, like they are here in, here in the States uh, where everything is about shareholder value. Um, but the, I, I want to bring this back to, to where Ilona and I first met. And that's the, the Humanistic Management uh, Center and Network, uh, which is a think tank based in Geneva that exists to establish this baseline that whatever your socioeconomic uh, school of, 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 of is, is rooted in, if you're not if you're not serving the people alongside the shareholders, um, A, you're, you're not taking care of the people that actually run your company, um, and B, you're never gonna maximize shareholder value um, because having, having a, diverse, um, a, a diverse group of people building things and having a diverse set of people consuming your things are you know by by our definition within the humanistic management world, these are the ways that you maximize value, uh, and this is this is kind of the central tenet that originally you know connected me and Ilona, and it, it still connects these two perspectives on socioeconomic uh, rootings. Is this making sense? Yes, obviously it does. It makes a lot of sense. But then I wonder about another aspect. Because um, uh, on another topic from Kozminski University, the, the, the business decision-making um, uh, process, we were uh, talking about um, uh, in which environment it's easier to make a decision and what's the quality of the decision. And the obvious answer would be, at this, I think it's obvious answer, that where it's easier to make a decision, in a homogenic uh, environment or, or, or a diverse one? Well... In a homogenic one, obviously, because we are all the same or equal or, or almost the same and, and so on and so forth, right? So it's probably easier and faster to make decisions in a homogenic environment. Mm -hmm. But uh, what I hear from you guys, and well, I agree with that, obviously, um, why would it still make sense to have a diverse environment for what's the impact from diverse environment on decision making process? The, the since it probably makes a longer time to, to make a decision in environment like that. Dana, what do you think? 
Absolutely. So in, in, in terms of decision-making with diverse versus, you know, higher diversity versus lower diversity teams, you know, of course, of course, that like you say, the teams that have lower diversity are going to make decisions more quickly. Um, the real danger there, though, is that all of the perspectives that you're not including and accounting for, those aren't just unknowns. They're unknown unknowns. They're, question, they're, they're answers that you can't have because they're questions that you didn't ask. So you'll never know how wrong you are. Um, you, you run the risk of saying things like, oh, I just developed this great product. It's going to bring all of this value to all of these people. And if you don't have a vision impaired person actually testing the product, how do you know that they can even log in? I know, I know there, there are massive lawsuits around that specific use case um, in this country. I would suspect there are in, in the continent as well. Do, do you have any examples that you could share? Uh... Uh, Target. Target was sued. Um, the, 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 it's a consumer goods uh, store here in, in the United States uh, where their, their, online, their online store was not usable by vision impaired people. Uh, and they were sued um, under accessibility guidelines and they had to go make sure that people using screen readers can still you know, buy their towels and you know, their, their wall clocks on their website. Um, and so they, you know, the government said, you know, your product, your product isn't marketable yet to a diverse audience and you must fix that um, because okay. these are, these are rights, not privileges over here. That's a great example. Thank you for that. And I haven't heard, heard about this, but, uh, but uh, this is true. I can imagine that if you don't have people that know about certain problems that people can have, right, then you might not notice them, right? So you don't know what you don't know. That was a great quote. Thank you for that, uh, Dana. Ilona? Um, well, I would say I would add to it, you know, apart from this unknown unknowns and all these hidden assumptions that, that we have. You know, because that's the that's the unknown knowns. Like we assume that something is going to work, and unless somebody challenges these assumptions, we're still gonna make a mistake. You know, it's it, it it's like a um it's like this famous case for uh, the uh, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bomb, right? It was studied decision. It's one of this this the famous study of how group thinking happens. The decision on using the nuclear weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki to, in, in the Second World War was equivocal. You know, nobody protested to use it. And there was a group consist, like, consisting of men only, military, politicians, and scientists. And, uh, you know, obviously they all have things against, but they... They nobody wanted to be the first one to be different because they were expected to think in the same line. So there is a danger of not having diverse uh, diverse teams. And uh, the second, you know, and also now I I, I want to quote uh, some uh, some research, very very scientific research on. Uh, on systems by uh, Professor Scott Page from Caltech. I think he was still in Caltech. And uh, he actually researched the decision, uh, the quality of problem solving by diverse versus uh, non-diverse teams. And what happened? That in complex problems, and most of the problems that we are facing now in companies, I mean, um, especially in managerial problems or, or new products or new markets are complex problems, that diverse teams provided better solutions 
than teams of experts. So the benefits of having diverse teams outweighs uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, I would say the inconveniences or costs of the longer decision-making process. With one, um, one thing, the problems are of non-standard character. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a worth, uh, worth uh, point taking. So um, in a case where we have more standardized thing, standardized way of, of, of standard thinking is standardized thinking is, is needed, then maybe diversity is not so important. But when it comes for creativity, creative solutions, solutions that need uh, thinking outside of the box, then diversity brings more value, even though the cost is bigger, but the value is outrageous, the cost. Doesn't that understand correctly, Ilona? Well, yes, That these are the, the, the outcomes of, of research. Okay, uh, thank you very much, Dan. And uh, then moving forward, because what I can imagine, it might be much harder to manage teams that are diverse and organizations that are, are diverse than the one that are a uh, homogenic one, right? Uh, so first, my question would be, is it true that it's harder? And then second question would be, how to deal with that? Do you have any ideas how, how people deal with, with, with inclusion and diversity on the managerial level? Uh, Ilona, we can start with you this time. I might get uh, this time my my voice to Danne because I okay. heard Danne your your uh, speech on the humanistic management congress and yes. you have some research of yours. Uh, well, and and I, I actively do this. That is, I'm I'm actively yeah. you know the the lead engineer of of these these massive teams, and we're and and like I keep coming back to the various dimensions of diversity inclusion. You know, when we talk about DNI. You know, the first thought that comes to mind is usually, you know, are there enough women in the room? Are there enough, are there enough economically disenfranchised people from this country in the room? But I, I also want to focus on many companies these days, especially during the pandemic, are global. Um, that is, especially, you know, and I, again, like I told you, Adam, when I agreed to give this talk, I can't specifically talk about Oracle because we have a giant legal team that has opinions. Um, but I can speak generally about the tech sector, you know, companies that I've worked with, uh, that they're basically all global markets. Um, and they're all global contributors as well. Um, so it is... If we, if we, I want to, I want to come back to this original definition. Um, what, what, what I, what I call, what we call privilege. Um, it's the, the the set of all problems that each of us is free to ignore because they don't face us personally. Um, everybody has it. Everybody's are different. Um, and if the only thing that we do is act within that privilege. Um, it'll make decisions and it'll keep group coherency for a very homogeneous group, but it doesn't scale. Um, so the, so the best practices that, that work to the best practices that work to get decisions and actions um, in front of a group that come from the entire group and affect the entire group, they, they really work the same way, whether you're talking about um, remote inclusion or gender inclusion or any of these other aspects. And these are, these are things like, you know, acknowledging quickly, but responding slowly and carefully because, you know, the, the, the text that you send is, you know, is your word. Like that's, that's what you've, um, that's what you've expressed. Um, and um, active listening, I have to say, if I, if I were to say one tool that has leveled the playing field the best for most engineering teams that I work with, it's simply the phrase, what I'm hearing is, 
dot, dot, dot. And then you repeat what you said, repeat what you heard. Because um, many, many times, especially when you're in the trenches of doing, you know, in engineering or managerial work in tech companies, there's, there's a, there's a, a a lot of people are encouraged to talk over each other or to interrupt each other. And, you know, if you, if you were to go to all of the women on the teams that I've worked with in the past, you know, two decades that I've been doing engineering work and said, if I could get the whole team to do one thing to level the playing field for you, what would it be? Across the board, 100% of them said, get people to stop interrupting me in meetings. But you can't just say that. You can't just say, stop interrupting me. Uh, but what you can say is repeat what you heard, because that bakes in the assumption that the person is listening and not just thinking about the thing that they're waiting to say. Uh, so that's the, that's the best tool to solve that problem in, in my, my experience. I'm really interested to hear what Ilona has to say about this, though. Yeah, uh, Dana, I, I, first I have to ask, uh-huh. how does it work, you know, for... for uh, you know, in practice. So let's say you're on a meeting, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you said that people tend to talk um, over each other. And uh-huh. you as a manager, uh, what do you do to make sure that all of them are, are heard, you know, especially those that are minority? Sure, sure. Um, so, so what... So what I'm hearing is you're curious how this actually works. That's, you know, an okay. example of doing this. Uh-huh. So... Um, so I guess bigger picture too, I'm not a manager. I don't have direct reports, never have, never okay. will, don't like doing that. I'm an engineer. Um, right. So so what I do is I go to the managers of those teams and I say, you know, look, I've, I'm, I'm you know, hear, hearing about problems. I'm seeing some problems in this team. Can you please role model this inclusive behavior for your team? Um, so that, that that is to say, the managers themselves and and the TPMs and the tech writers and everybody in the room, um, the phrase "what I'm hearing is" eventually becomes commonplace. And then you know people people just if the managers are role modeling this inclusive behavior, people tend to fall in line, and those those struggling less diverse teams start to become more inclusive other of other perspectives. Uh huh. Thank you because you were just presented a tool. You know the word I'm hearing is, and it's uh-huh. a tool. It's it's exactly a, a phrase that that can be used, can can be um, well, applied. can be role modeled. Yeah, can be role modeled. Yes, it's uh, well, it's it, it's fantastic to hear it because uh, one of the most difficult things in organizations and the organizations that I researched and. Um, that I worked with, uh, well, including the university, right? You know, it's it, it, it's it's a normal organization, and uh, and th- there are privileged groups that are more privileged than others. Uh, one of the most difficult things is to change the status quo. Mm-hmm. It, to uh, you know, uh, work uh, in organization that is, let's say, uh, dominated by people of one kind, and uh, in IT, um, IT sector in general, you can see that men are dominant group. So the the women that are in this sector, um, you know, the, the, everybody says there are not enough gender diversity, mm-hmm. and there are different initiatives how to bring how to make it more more bring the gender equality and the, some of the initiatives were 
actually building extra privileges for minority. And mm -hmm. that usually sparks reaction. Right. And it's really difficult. So, for example, when I discuss, even with my students or, or people that I work with on diversity, uh, there are there is a lot of, um, how to say, almost protesting from men mostly, saying that, but also from women, that all these programs that are targeted at inclusion, whether they be women or people with, with disabilities or, or ethnic minorities, that these people from minority, they're overprivileged. It's not fair and, and they're taking advantage of it. So the, uh, you know, uh, the tool that you just presented is, I think it's the alternative approach and I think it's yeah. better because it's a bottom-up approach. So so I wanna, um, Adam, there's one, one other thing I wanna say in response to this. Um, <clears throat> to me, the definition of a level playing field isn't that we've given privileges to underprivileged people. The definition of a level playing field is that we've removed barriers that only face some people so everybody's work can speak for itself. Um, so, the, so the playing field naturally levels. Um, and I, I should really give credit where credit's due here. I didn't invent this, this tool, this active listening tool. Um, this is, there was a report that the World Economic Forum came up with, uh, came out with in 2018 uh, that uh, I'm quoting from, they say, none of us will see gender parity in our lifetimes, nor will many of our children. And many of us who are really into diversity and inclusion read this and got really sad. Um, but what they say, the, 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 the recommended, you know, the best practice, the one thing that we can all do is role model inclusive behavior. Uh, that is, you know, we're responsible for the realities that we inhabit. Um, so let's just make that part of the culture, active, active listening, um, and then removing barriers that only face some people. Because once, our, once everybody's work can speak for itself, to me, that's a pretty solid definition of a level playing field. I must say that I feel, uh, guys, you are asking better questions than I do. <laughs> so thank you for that, Ilona. Seriously, I started noting in the meantime because when you when you talked, I thought that well, this is actually a better question than, than I have on, on my list regarding to the giving privileges to to the people that that are unprivileged. There might spark some discussion. So thank you for asking that question. Thank you for answering to it because I, I you already um, have walked um, a few steps uh, before me. So that's really great. But I have uh, I would like to nag you down a, a bit more. Uh, to be an agar and to ask you about more cases uh, that I have remembered from I, my experience. Um, you mentioned uh, asking um, this question, if I understood you correctly, if I heard you well, uh, and so on. But what, uh, how to handle the cultural differences that we can have. I have worked a few times uh, in my life with people from um, India. I have worked a few times in my life with, I constantly work with, in my life with people from, uh, from uh, Denmark, um, from Germany. And there are different cultures on uh, giving feedback, for example, on uh, speaking up, on admitting to mistakes or admitting that you don't understand something, right? 
in some cases people are very open like we, they on the first meeting they will tell you well you, you screw up guy and, and give you feedback right other people are more quiet and they they are afraid of speaking about problems because they in their culture their boss could punish them for for making mistake or something like that like in sure. like in Japan for example in Japan you have a boss and you should not oppose your boss right and and there was this really great book written by um, Joe Hastings from Netflix Uh, in regards how they had problems when they had this culture of uh, critical candor, of candor where you just give the feedback to people and they, they opened branch in Japan. And in Japan, <laughs> when, uh, when employees were supposed to tell to their, their, their boss, well, this sucks or, or you, you screw up something, then it were not so easy uh, in a culture where you usually start your work and until end of your career, you work in one company, right? Mm-hmm. So... How to deal with cultural differences here, right? When you when you operate in multicultural environment, you have people from Mexico, Japan, India, Europe, United States, Canada, Asia, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Are you, you asking tips? me or Alona? Yes, no, no, you done it. As uh, for okay. your 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 experience as Oracle is also international um, sure. organization, right? So, well, and again, I can't speak specifically to Oracle, but I can talk generically. I've been in the I've been in the tech sector for 27 years, um, and there's there's a, a couple of places where I can where I can definitely comment. There are there are diversity and inclusion just stakes you have to drive into the ground. That is, there there are, there are things that. There are rules that you have to accept, uh, and I'll, I'll give an example of one of those. Um, you know, I'm uh, clearly a woman. Um, you know, when I'm, you, there have been instances where I would be interviewing somebody that you know maybe comes from another country, uh, and I, I don't want to you know name names of countries, but there are countries where women are treated more like property and you know less less like you know independent organisms with our own educations and perspectives and things um and there have been numerous instances over the years that I've been an engineer where I would be interviewing somebody from another country that isn't used to you know having any manner of respect for women and I would be in the interview room with them and I would you know I would ask one of my technical questions and they won't face me they won't address me they won't respond to questions they they you know i'm literally the only other person in the room um and they're just trying to run out the clock uh just hoping that they don't actually have to you know to work at whatever company i'm interviewing for uh that they don't you know actually have to interface with women and it turns out we just you know that that that's one of those baseline rules um that you that there are when you're operating in a multicultural environment um the 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 limit the, the there's this paradoxical the, the the limit of it the the limit of tolerance is intolerance um so you know in 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 some of these and that's a very extreme case uh, or, or i should say set of four different cases that i've survived four of these interviews where just people wouldn't speak to me um it's like well i guess we're not going to hire you um you don't get to work here if you can't talk to women uh cuz guess what um one of them's the lead engineer um but that's that's an extreme case so i want to walk us back to some of the more some of the more moderate cases that i that i think i hear you um expressing and these are things like you know cult- cultural values against challenging the norms or against you know uh being exhibiting some kind of intellectual vulnerability as it were um in a in a public space and we we do need to be sensitive to those um to the extent that they're 
tolerant of other perspectives. Um, and and it's it's when they run into that barrier of tolerance that it makes them, you know, comparatively little different than the person that wouldn't respond to my questions in an interview room. Um, that is if if they're if they're saying, you know, no, um, what the what the boss says is what goes and we just have to, you know, disagree and commit is is common to hear in the tech sector. Um, if I guess where, where I'm going with this is any uh, any cultural system that's not grounded in tolerance and consensus is going to be pushing up against this world of invisible problems, this, this world of privilege um, in ways that by definition aren't going to level the playing field. They're going to you know, disadvantagely or uh, disproportionately advantage uh, a, a dominant group. Um, so, you know, the, the, the way to do that, you know, isn't to come in, you know, swinging a battle axe saying, you know, hey, we're going to change the culture of this place overnight. And here I'm going to challenge my boss because because Dana said that that's the right thing to do. It's 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 really it, it starts with with open conversations, um, you know, generally one on one. Like if I if I were coaching a team for how do I how do I get the the earlier career engineers to feel like they can even speak up? Because that's that's a that the problem that I hear you mentioning is one that I see a lot of, that the super senior engineers are driving the conversation and the super junior engineers who are actually closer to the problems that we're trying to solve don't feel like they have a way to get a word in edgewise. Um, so you know what I, what I do in those instances is I'll actually go to the lead engineer, I'll go to the manager, and I'll say, look, you know, there there are more inclusive behaviors that we can be role modeling here. So I want you to back me up. And, you know, in our next meeting, you know, I'm, I'm going to talk to, you know, each of these more junior engineers and say, hey, checking in, are we doing the right thing in the right way? And, you know, explicitly, you know, go, go through everybody in the room and make sure everybody knows that they need to be heard. And that, that works for me. Great. Thanks for that, uh, Dana. Ilona, do you have anything to add? Uh, any, any examples, any, any science, any, any theories that could help us here? Or, or many examples that you have uh, seen in your experience? Because I know that also before the work at university, you, you were working in, in a, uh, well, uh, in normal companies, right? Normal companies, yeah. yes. Thank you. On behalf of the university, Sorry. Yes, it's normal. Um, no, well, yes, yes, I did. But but also, you know, working, uh, working at the university, I also work with, um, you know, people all over the world. I mean, I, uh, I mostly lecture in Asia, where uh, the cultures are completely different. And um, what Dana said, I, I do agree that when you work with people in completely different cultures, where this kind of equality and inclusion is not a core value. Uh, it, well, obviously, you know, you need to change it and you need to change it slowly because it's not going to change overnight. So uh, one thing that helps me and something when I sometimes, you know, mm, when when companies or people come to, to, to consult how they how to deal with this cultural uh, in national differences, I'd say, first of all, get to know as much as possible of what they are. I mean, this is kind of an openness to otherness. It's an attitude, right? It's it, it, it's part of the culture. It's, it, it's an attitude. It's to go from closeness to openness. And you need to be done kind of gradually. And 
uh, one thing that uh, that I observe that people are more open and more tolerant to something which is different when they know a little bit more of where it comes from. So knowledge helps us to be more open. But as I as Dana said, it's not going to happen overnight. So uh, I would say education about the fact that we are different and how we are different uh, is one of the first steps to changing our attitudes. So, uh, you know, in practice, uh, like um, sometimes the companies or, or, or people, they want to know something more about how to deal with people, let's say, from China. I, I mean, we have it quite a lot right now because um, there are more and more companies that are, are kind of joint ventures and so on. And I found out that the more people know, the more are willing to listen and to give space to the other person to talk. And I would say it comes with any diversities. We are naturally afraid of the unknown. And I've been recently working with a friend of mine on a research on disability and attitudes of people with disabilities. And the results are very clear. The, People with all kinds of disabilities, uh, sorry, the, the, the reason why people with all kinds of disabilities are uh, don't have an equal access to company, uh, it means, you know, their voices being heard and access companies, it's because of the fear and the fear comes with the lack of exposure. Us as, you know, the monkey part in us is afraid of something that we don't know. Thank you for that. And I can assume that fostering this knowledge can be done from some kind of education and courses of the employees. And I can give example from my organization how this. Uh, my mother company is in Denmark. We, we live in Poland and uh, each of the employee can go through this uh, cultural co course where, where we learn about Danish culture. So it's much easier for me, for example, to speak with other employees because I know their culture, right? Unfortunately, it's only Polish Denmark and there are people from other countries as well, but at least this, this, the strongest connection um, is, is covered. So, so that's, uh, I think, really good. Uh, but here I would like to reverse the situation because right now we're mostly speaking from the top level, right? From uh, We are managers, we are the bosses, right? So, so uh, why it would matter to me that the, the organization is diverse, but Let's reverse it a bit. Imagine that we are the, the employee that I joined company and I see that diversity is not well welcomed in my organization. How I can convince, how I can change that organization from inside? And I'm not sure if you have seen the, the Netflix documentary, really good movie. It's about, it's called American Factory. And it's about this uh, Chinese company that is opening factory in United States. And the managers there are from China. They want to enforce exactly the same culture they have in China, in the United States. So they oppose uh, workers' unions and stuff like that. It's really good documentary. If you haven't seen it, then, then I highly recommend it. Um, but basically, imagine that you're in a situation like that, that China CEO opens a factory in Poland and he wants to have exactly the same environment that he has in China, exactly the same rights that he has in China, how he treat employees. How would you convince that boss, that manager, that it makes sense to have more diverse diverse environment that it, it will be, be good for, for, for everybody. 
Uh, Donna, maybe we can start with you this time. Absolutely. Um, so there's a, uh, my, my, my approach to this really, really kind of takes two phases. Phase, phase one is to nail the basics of compliance. Um, that is in, in this country, you know, or in any country, there are certain dimensions of diversity that are simply not optional. Um, that is in order to transact business, you know, on U.S. soil, um, you have to meet a certain minimum standard of diversity and inclusion. Um, but that's, you know, that's the stick, not the carrot. Um, if you if you want to lead with the carrot, um, <clears throat> and this is this is the other half of this approach, is to make the business case. Um, and there's, you know, if you if you go to Humanistic Management Center's site, there's lots of resources that you can go read on how you make the business case that a, div a diverse workforce builds a better product. It builds a more marketable product and, and one that one that can be sold to more kinds of people because you've you have more more different uh, more more diverse perspectives being represented there. And not just at the product engineering and product development and 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 so on uh, levels. Um, because every time that there are that are, there are you know gears meeting other gears within your company that also those also those internal company products uh, benefit from the same um, from the same approach. Um, you know, every every team considers that the output of their team is a product that other teams are consuming. And, you know, the, the same pattern that applies to the whole company also applies to each of those teams within the company. Um, you know, a compliance organization can't build compliance as a product uh, without diverse perspectives. You know, an access control organization can't build access control as a product uh, without, you know, making sure that people with screen readers can use it and things like this. So, so that the same logic that works for the company works for the team. And, and I, you know, I, I start, start, sometimes we start at the top and work down and sometimes we start at the top, bottom and work up. Um, but it's the same logic being applied in the same way. That's, I think, a good idea. And my question would be, Dana, could you send me later the link you mentioned? Uh, because I can include that in the description of the podcast. So the listeners oh, can are. find directly. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thank yeah. you, Dana. Uh, yeah, I'll drop it in chat. Mm -hmm. It's here in yes. chat. Speaking about this humanistic management network and probably one of the cases that uh, kind of I, I found really uh, striking uh, is, uh, Dana, uh, you probably remember from the meeting, uh, was the case of the power coders, uh, you know, the organization that actually um, is an organization for, it's an NGO for refugees who are people with in, in Switzerland uh, who are people who are very qualified, but their qualifications are either not recognized in the country of the asylum, uh, you know, that gave the asylum, or uh, the qualifications are of a kind that, that are not needed on the market. And, uh, you know, the, the, the story is that in, in Switzerland, uh, the one of the I, I think IT engineers, he started an organization that trained refugees in coding, uh, in any kind of IT skills. And of course, because there is a huge um, gap, huge deficiency of people with IT skills on the market. But there is also this fear from employing somebody who is the unknown, the refugee. So mm -hmm. the organizations, first of all, they trained people in the skills, and then they organized job fairs where companies that uh, were th that needed 
coders, testers, or, or any people with IT skills could meet people who had these skills. And then they gave these, uh, you know, specialists or qualified people that, that were the refugees, they gave them jobs. And uh, I don't remember the, the statistics, but a great majority of something that started as a short contract, you know, this, okay, let's employ this girl, let's employ this guy and see how it goes. And these people stayed in the job. So it was a mutual benefit, both for the disadvantaged community and for the companies that clearly the business case for inclusion of the um, of the disadvantaged group. And uh, this is the example of kind of um, almost, a, I wouldn't say it's top down, well, I, I would say it's even sideways. <laughs> You know, it's bottom up or 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 or, uh, or top down. This is this is the organization that provides the needed resources from the underused group of people on the job market, and that's mm-hmm. the business case for diversity and a social case as well, because it brings the social inclusion for the group of people who is one of the most excluded in the society. Thank you very much for making this case, Ilona, as well. Uh, and I, I then the exact the, the the name of the organization because it's really worth checking. Yeah, I'll just post it on the chat then as well, and I will add this to the description of the meetup. Thank you very much. Power coders, great. Uh, I have another question which popped up to my mind right now uh, on how to set up boundaries uh, in what is allowed in our organization what is not allowed because on what uh, one uh, side we can, we want we want to say we want to create a culture of inclusion so everybody is welcome every, every diverse uh, way of thinking way of being uh, is is welcome so we want to include everybody but at the same time some of the differences might just uh, make the environment unworkable for the the majority. So the minority might make the, the environment unworkable for ma- ma- majority. And uh, how I can give you a direct example, not from an organization where I work, but from dormitory during my studies. We had some exchange students. And when they were using the kitchen that was used for by everybody, they were making these very smelly uh, dishes, which is was quite annoying, I would say, right? Uh, and and that have created some tensions, right? I, I know that maybe the, the 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 example might be a bit absurd from the organizational level, but at the same time, I can imagine that, for example, let's say that you would have a canteen in our office, and and. And, and people that eat special dishes made for them, that might be just annoying to other employees, right? So where can we put boundaries on what is like the standard for this organization and you as an employee have to lean in? And where we put boundaries saying, okay, you want to be open so everybody is welcome, right? So I don't want to go into direction when like in France, they... they forbid burkas, putting burkas on your on your head because that's like uh, limiting the the liberty of of, of uh, some group of of uh, religious people right and so that's obviously not the best idea mm, uh, but at the same time saying that we want for example uh, allow smelly food in our office that will annoy everybody else is also maybe not the best idea so how we can make a diverse organization that will not uh, 
create situation where minority is overlooking the majority. Uh, maybe we can start this time with uh, with you, Ilona. Maybe you have some ideas or examples. Yes, yeah. If I hear you, Tane, uh, what was it? Uh, what I'm what I'm hearing is what I'm hearing is yes, yes. <laughs> I'm going to learn this quote right because it is very useful. What I'm hearing is um, Adam that you're uh, asking about to what level the the organization can can accommodate differences. Yes. Right? So how to accommodate differences, but at the same time, how to create an environment that is inclusive for for everybody, mm -hmm. right? We want to yeah. have diverse environments. So we want to have as many points of view as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, well, uh, there are, uh, you know, uh, I would say that uh, every organization, uh, as well as a society, uh, there needs to be some common ground. Okay, the, the, there is a diversity, but there, the, obviously, but there is something like some common rules. For example, that um, you know, you uh, well, the, the the example with the food is uh, actually, you know, it's not as uncommon as you say. And in some organizations, there actually are different canteens that serve different kind of food, right? And is this a discriminating practice? Or is it just because the differences in, in food preparation is so mm, irreconcilable, right? Uh, and it's, it, I would say there is no uh, one simple solution. It never is. Uh, but uh, to me, I would say it has to be done by some kind of a common agreement. What can be done and what not? And um not in a way of uh, of um, imp like imposing something, but rather than trying to find out what the different group needs and what disturbs them and to find some common ground. But maybe two canteens uh, or two parts of the canteen is not that bad. You know, I actually like certain type of food which is very pungent and smelly so i would probably go there uh, just mm. for the food uh, thank you for that what i'm hearing is that you can have some ground rules that's <laughs> uh, that's great but you can also try to create environment that still uh, we would have uh, more more inclusion and uh, one of the uh, examples of the ground rules, I remember that in one of the office at some point there was this uh, this uh, piece of paper stick next to the microwave that you don't eat fish in the office because if you eat fish in the in the office with the microwave then it's very very smelly. So it was not a cultural thing; it was just a fish thing. You don't you should not eat fish um, in the office as a but ground rule. I, I I would say even please do not eat fish because if you put fish in the microwave it's really hard to clean. I mean, people are more likely to obey the rules if they know why they should obey them. And that's a very important point, to mention why we have these rules in place, right? That's that's a thing. Thank you very much for that, Ilona, that, for that follow-up. That was that was really important. Uh, Dana, uh, any points from you? So, yeah, a couple. Um, so I want I want to I want to pull us back to the, uh, one statement: the ethics of a decision. You know whether something is, is is right or wrong, that doesn't come from the intent of the deciding person or group. The 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 rightness and wrongness of an action come from the impact 
of that decision. That is what, what, what impact that decision actually had on a broader group. <clears throat> and in the scope of, in the scope of, of you know, human rights, you know, I'm, I'm grouping natural and positive rights here together um, because human rights are really both, but you know, it, they, they have one thing in common. That is if, a, if some trait of a culture is found across all cultures, um, such as education or marriage, including same-sex marriage, you know, there, there are aspects of this um, that, are, that are just universal. Those are the things that get enshrined as human rights. Um, so when you have a decision that has an ethical impact on somebody else, um, every time that has an impact outside of the person or group that's deciding it, you have to have consensus among that deciding group up until the point at which it runs into uh, runs a ground of human rights. Um, and this is uh, what, what I'm what I'm hearing from you, Adam, with this example of the the Burka decision in France, which was very controversial um, because to some people it's religious freedom and to some people it's public safety um, for for various constructions of various you know valid perspectives and arguments. Um, I, I think that the, the less contentious example that I heard is, you know, microwaving fish, which is a decision that has an impact on everybody on that floor of that building. Um, I can tell you many buildings that have those little no fish stickers on the microwave because I, it's not everybody consented to that. I, I must say that the fish thing should be a human right, that you don't eat fish <laughs> in the office and should be in a human right somewhere. Yeah. But, but like sorry, the, please, please follow up. <laughs> please move on. No, that, I mean, that's the, so that's, you know, nearing, nearing the end of the comments that I just wrote, wrote out. Um, so when you have a decision that impacts other people, that requires the consensus of those other people that are going to be impacted by that decision. Um, so long as, again, it doesn't run aground of, of violating human rights of things like religious expression. Microwaving fish is not religious expression. Um, you can eat cold fish um, and, and not, you know, send all of the vegetarians on the floor running to the bathroom because they're now nauseous. Um, <clears throat> so there are, there are um, models of this consensus that do scale. Like when you think about consensus, frequently that comes with a side order of deadlock and frustration. And, you know, we, we can't do anything until everybody agrees on it, but there are sim simpler models of consensus that actually scale. I use these everywhere, you know, throughout nearly every company that I've no, actually every company that I've worked for approval consensus is the simple, simplest one that I know of that scales, which is very simple. Anytime you want to do something that might affect other people or affect other teams, you propose that you're going to do that. You wait uh, until everybody, you know, reads the thing that you propose, um, and all of the stakeholders, uh, it, it, everybody, you know, either approves or, or they'll they'll approval or they'll block uh, or they'll abstain. And if everybody that chimes in approves or abstains, then you're fine. But if anybody blocks it, then you have to go rework the thing. Because um, the, the the big reason that this gives people the, the freedom to act without having everybody have to agree is that it gives, it gives people the ability to retain the right to not care. Um, you know, if, if, if I, you know, for, for example, my father, you know, had fell and, you know, later had brain damage, he didn't have a sense of smell. He's not going to care if somebody's microwaving fish. He's not going to chime in on that that office email thread of, you know, hey, I'm thinking about microwaving fish. Are there any vegetarians in the office today <clears throat> that are going to, you know, get sick by this or start to feel sick? Um, and as long as you have that freedom to, to not have strong opinions, um, then the people that do and will be impacted by a decision still have the platform that they need to, to be heard. 
really uh, interesting points. Thank you for that, Dana. Uh, I think we can uh, slowly uh, approach uh, till the end, but, uh, but before that, I still have some questions in regarding to the building the environment, because we talked a bit about making environment in a way that's setting rules, setting boundaries and so on. And what about how to build diverse environment in, a, in, in regards to having the diverse people uh, in my organization and not in a way that we right now will say 50% of our organization have to be women from today because as you already mentioned that's not necessarily the the, the best way of having diverse mm -hmm. environment but at the same time I can uh, imagine the um, the demographic for example part of, of uh, how much of the workforce is available there in the, the, in, the in regards to for example the uh, the men and women, let's say. And I remember during my studies, uh, my study counted 70 people in the group, and out of these 70 people, only five of them were women. So at the end, when I work in the IT organization, I work on technical university, obviously, right? So, so at least right now, I know that this proportion is different, but at my times, uh, several years ago, it was five people on 70 uh, people uh, group, right? So five of them were women. So at the end, when I finish in the organization and when I, I see in 70 people organization, five women, does it mean that then the organization is not diverse enough or just it represents the demographic, right? Uh, if so, how we can move on into the direction where we have more diversity in both places? So the universities, right? So more women would decide to go mm -hmm. in tech. And then secondly, into the organization, right? Of course, we can make the example more broader, but I think men and women is the most visual right now. <laughs> and uh, you, since I started with saying about university, then maybe Ilona, maybe you have some, some ideas on how to move mm -hmm. in this direction. Yeah, well, especially in the, uh, in the IT sector, that is, you know, the biggest disproportion. Uh, and this is the one that, you know, right now has been studied. Um, you know, the, the first, uh, okay, just kind of building on what we already said and we already agree that uh, business needs competence, right? It's it, it kind of natural. And employing somebody who is not competent uh, just to bring more demographic diversity, it's definitely a bad idea. It's the bad idea for business. It's a bad idea for the social message generally a bad idea. So it needs to start from the bottom, from the supply of talent. And uh, this is the question that, um, well, this is the question that's been asked for a couple of years or, or, or even a decade or, or more, how to, for example, attract more girls into the tech university. And what are the obstacles for, for girls to, to go there and stay there? Because going to the university and having a a degree in, in, in STEM is one thing, and then working in the sector is another. And I, I don't know, Dan, about yourself. I mean, you being one of the highest level engineers, uh, how, many, how many women did you have uh, with you when you studied? I mean, in oh, group. Oh, I was about to say, I cannot give you the statistic at Oracle, clearly. Okay, no, not at Oracle. I'm talking you about your university. Lord. <laughs> but in terms of university, um, yeah, there was so so I went to university in Texas uh, before I uh -huh. moved to the West Coast out here. I'm I'm up um, just outside of Seattle, um, and we we had the same problem at the University of Texas. You know, out, out of you know out of every 100 computer science majors, I would say there were 10 to 15 women in the room, uh, and that was it. 
Um, so there is definitely a sampling bias. Uh-huh. Um, what are so, your experiences? So, I mean, I, I'm just taking advantage on the fact that I can talk about it. You know, me being the, the say, working at the university and asking, you know, somebody who made a, a career in, in IT, uh, how was it mm-hmm. to be a you know, minority in a group of students? Um, on the on the good days, it didn't matter. Um, okay. uh, and so especially at university, so universities have have um, a trait in common with giant multinational conglomerate companies and that they both have to care about diversity. Like that, you know, mm-hmm. not, not yeah. caring about that's not on the menu. It's not optional. Um, so, um, so if there were things that were, you know, problems that were disproportionately affecting women, where I experienced those at university and where I experienced those, you know, at major multinational companies, my response is the same. You know, if there's, if there's mm-hmm. something that's disproportionately affecting women, you know, at the, at the university, you have an ombudsman uh, and at, at, uh, at tongue companies, you've, you've got a human resources department uh, and you've got an, you, it frequently, uh, you know, Oracle has, uh, Oracle and many other companies have external ethics auditors as well uh, that'll, you know that if if there's if there are things that are happening that you know the company's not dealing with, and I'm not going to say that I've seen this in my four years at Oracle so far, um, but I you know it is a process that is available um, that that people can use. Um, so I know that in the big cases there's institute there's institutionalized things that make this better. It's the smaller companies, the smaller cases, the smaller universities where you just have to stand up for yourself. Um, and that's never, that's never easy. Um, yeah. And it hasn't, it hasn't been easy for me in smaller companies either. Like there, there've been some startups, you know, some startups that are just fit out of the park, you know, it's, they've got, you know, they've got other women in leadership roles. Um, there are some startups that were, I, I actively advise my friends not to go work for, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I'm not, we're, we're being recorded. So I'm definitely not naming names right now. No, no, of course not. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's just good to be aware of it. Yeah. You know, so, in the, sorry. Uh, no, that that's okay. Sorry. Somebody trying to phone me. Okay. Because I am um, so in those in those cases, I fall back to you know v- very uh, uh, direct action strategies that are that are very informed by like Vachlov Havel's work. Um, you know, you 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 help each other out. You 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 form consensuses. You do things yourself. Um, you just accept that you're responsible for the reality that you inhabit, and you start building that world where you're standing, even if you're the only one standing there. Yeah. And, and thank you for this, because I think because it's a podcast, it's also a message for, uh, I would say, maybe other girls in tech, in IT, not only girls, any any minorities, just to stand for yourself, stand your ground, do, do the grand job, right? Just try to get help and then help others. And I think that's a great message as for the end of our of our midcast. Um, I have run out at least uh, from the questions, unless uh, you have maybe some interesting topics, questions that you would like to move, uh, that you would like to touch. Uh, we still have a few minutes left that we we, we could ask if you have uh, something that you think that would be interesting to talk about. Uh, Dana, may I have a question? Hmm? Uh, 
you said that you uh, you know uh, you're looking at the diversity in in artificial intelligence. Uh, what does it mean? Um, so so yes, uh, this was uh, it's not necessarily diversity across you know AI agents having rights or like I know there are you know, yeah. major international conversations about that, like, you know, what rights to AIs and and um, uh, and various agents have in, in that space. I, I don't really want to, I don't really want to speak to that um, okay. because that, that begs a definition of suffering that just doesn't translate to machines. Mm-hmm. That is most, most constructions of rights ground some somewhere in, you know, can they reason or can they suffer? Um, and, uh, you know, re- reasoning is, is usually what we tie to things like uh, positive rights and natural rights is more tied to suffering. So, you know, AIs, yes, we can give them positive rights, you know, things like voting if we wanted to, but they're, they're not going to have natural rights because they don't suffer in a, in a, in a traditional sense. Um, but to, to take a step kind of sideways from that, when we, when we talk about how my AI ethics work applies to human rights, um, there was a um, there was some work that I was doing with Center for Theory back at University of Texas in 2006, 2008-ish, thereabouts, um, in uh, Dr. Ben Agar's world, uh, where we were, were we were working on on ways that we could construct human ethics in ways that are um, uh, both mathematically rigorous, that is, if you ask them a question, they will always give you an answer, um, and human compatible, that is, the answer that they give you is always going to be, you know, very, very close to the answer that a human is going to give you uh, on, on the same kinds of questions. Um, so we worked that out. And I guess the, um, the 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 summary of that 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 the findings of that group, uh, you know, over is, is that over the yeah, it's over a decade ago. Wow. Um, the the I guess the summary of the findings of that group was that the 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 ethical impact the ethical impact of a, of a decision is is effectively modeled by whether or not you maximized what's called the intersubjective agency of the group that's making the decision, where agency is our ability to make and act upon a decision. Um, And intersubjectivity is the property of a group that lives between each node of a group rather than within each node. Uh, So when you're talking about intersubjective agency, we're talking about the ability of a group to come to consensus, align on a thing that they want to do. And and then this is the critical part. They have to be able to act on that decision um, or it's not agency. So if you maximize this this trait, intersubjective human agency, um, you can you can prove you can prove um, human rights mathematically. Um, so there was um, when I was working working with some of the the humanistic management center um, meetings here in not here in Seattle, I'm two hours north of Seattle, but down in Seattle. Um, one of the things that we started doing was starting to apply this this logic to to diversity and inclusion. Um, that is, you know, can we really maximize the ability of a group to make and act upon a decision on behalf of the entire group if we're not paying attention to the problems that only affect, you know, a 10% of the nodes in the group or, you know, 20% of the units of the, the people of a group? Um, well, well we, we set aside, you know, modeling that and turns out there's, you know, what we found is that in order to systematic, like to apply the systemized way of thinking to this distributed problem space, you do have to define privilege as the set of things that you're free to ignore because they don't affect you personally problems. Um, and you do have to, you know, have some kind of consensus around, um, 
you do have to have some kind of consensus model uh, around how, how decisions are being made that loops in all of the groups that are going to be impacted by that decision. Um, and again, there are lightweight ways to do this. Um, does that clear it up how the AI and human rights part of my world? Yes, inter- well, okay. you know, as much as I could process it with my clearly, you know, humanistic mind, but that sounds fascinating. And Adam, I would say this is another dimension to why uh, diversity is important. I must say that uh, proving human rights in a, by mathematical rules just blew my mind. So that, that, that's, that's, that's awesome that that's even possible or that's happening somewhere. So that's another thing that, about which I would like to read more um, uh, after, after our, uh, our midcast will end. Uh, but I have another question sparked by the question from, um, from Ilona in, in regards to Yet again, diversity. And I know that one of the organizations, I will not mention the name, but after mentioning the example, I think everybody will know about who I'm talking about, was trying to deal with hiring policy by using AI. And by after teaching mm-hmm. AI, it turned out that the AI was biased towards men and it wanted to hire more men than women. Mm, and obviously, after that, that project was killed. Uh, but uh, is it even possible to use AI to foster diversity in organizations, in example for hiring policies, is is it possible? Do you now so know some examples of successful implementation of of such such ideas, uh, Dane? Um, and so, do I know of examples, successful ones? I wouldn't say so. Um, one one of the big problems um, that AI faces is that they don't they don't reason about you know arbitrary relationships between observed phenomena phenomena they what they what they do is they you train them AIs require training and then once you've trained them then they have learned from the data that you have given them um, on how how to how to execute on those same patterns that they've been trained on, um, which is you know whether you're talking about AI for you know anomaly detection or or failure prediction um, or forecasting or or anything like this, it all follows the same basic paradigm of it's it's a very expert system that's been trained on a data set to act in a certain way, which works great if you're already solving the problem, like if you already know how to identify cancer cells you can train an AI to recognize cancer cells really, really quickly and easily. Um, but if it's, if, you're, if it's a problem like diversity and inclusion where the world that we live in is definitely not the world that we want computers to be mimicking, then I, I think any attempt at building an AI to get in front of that problem is, not, is gonna come short of solving the problem because we don't have the data yet. We, don't, we can't train something on the world that we wanna live in five years from now. Um, so that is to say, it's still, you know, all of these things still have to be people first. And then once we're more closely approximating the world that we want to live in, like once we know how, what the cancer cell looks like through a proverbial microscope, then we can get computers to start helping us out. But in, until then, we're just projecting our biases into machines. Thank you for that, Dana. Uh, Ilona, do you have any more uh, questions, ideas, uh, anything to add here? Well, I think just one thing that I, uh, you know, that comes from it, it's that there is a lot of questions that we need to solve, and we just can't, we can't count on on artificial intelligence to help us with the questions. So we kind of come back to we started, because we live in a very diverse world, uh, world, we need diversity 
to manage to, to manage this world, you know, to kind of not even make sense. I would say even to survive in this world, because the world is diverse. And if we don't take it into account, you know, what well, what's going to happen to us? You know, it's one of those big questions. Thank you for that, Ilona. That's a great uh, sentence for for the end of the of the midcast, like a philosophical one. So thank you, thank you for that, Dana. Any last words from you? Last opinions? Last things that you would like to share with the world? Um, yeah. So that's the um, the this last quote that I dropped into chat here. Is I think I think the core message uh, for everybody that listens to this midcast, this podcast, you are responsible for the reality that you inhabit. Um, you don't need permission to build the world that you want to live in. That's that's each of our responsibilities uh, on the ground where we're standing right now. Um, so so do that and find find the other perspectives and, and build the bridges. Uh, it's on it's on us, and, and that's the only way that we're gonna we're gonna build a diverse workforce. Thank you very much, Dana. Uh, so both of you are are great at ending uh, ending and having the last words. So that was really great. And it was really great chatting with you guys because I, I felt the, the chemistry of the discussion. So I think it was really interesting, uh, at least for me. And I believe that will be also interesting for the listeners of the podcast, podcast afterwards. So we touched on many different, very interesting topics. And I would like to highly thank you guys for, for joining, for agreeing for the interview and for joining me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having us, Adam. Yes. Thank you for the invitation.